Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, we're back with Pete Singer with the rest of his journey with Grace and his experience with spiritual abuse. Um, what are some scriptures used to abuse? I think just about every scripture in the Bible can be twisted and abused. And in so doing can be used to hurt people, to abuse people, to silence people. Um, and so it's very important that we are open to all of scripture. And whenever anyone quotes a scripture to look for context, to look for true meaning, to watch, is this a self-serving interpretation? And to dig deeper. And if something about it just doesn't ring true or feels off, trust your gut and consult with somebody else too. Um, Go to another faith leader who might have a different take on what forgiveness means, who might have a different take on what corporal punishment means and whether or not we're required to do corporal punishment of kids today. Um, and so it would be really important. If it, if it doesn't feel quite right, don't just accept one person's word that it is. Seek counsel. There is strength in a multitude of counselors. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Get their opinions on, is this a valid way to interpret this passage? Is there some other way that it may be interpreted? Does this seem off to you? But a couple of things that I've seen frequently misused. Almost any corporal punishment passage I've seen misused. Um, And I've seen it misused both when it comes to... um, corporal punishment passages related to children or corporal punishment passages related to adults. And just of interesting note, there are far more scripture verses that appear to order corporal punishment of adults than appear to possibly order corporal punishment of children. Um, So any passage of scripture that talks about corporal punishment can be twisted and misused. Any scripture on forgiveness, on repentance, on conflict resolution can be twisted and misused. Many passages of scripture that talk about conflict resolution are talking about conflict resolution between people of relatively equal power. Yes. And if we take conflict resolution strategies that are intended for people of relatively equal power and insist that they be applied when that power is not equal. We have taken that scripture out of context. We have misused it, misinterpreted it, misapplied it, and in so doing can cause great harm to people when we understand, and scripture even does recognize, that when there is a power differential, dynamics change. 
almost any scripture that talks about authority, whether it's the authority of parents, the authority of church leaders, can be twisted and used to justify abuse. You have to do what I say because God has placed me in authority over you. And see, this scripture passage says you need to obey me because I'm your pastor, your elder, your parent, your uh, whatever it might be. Any scripture passage that talks about leaders who have sinned can be misused. You can't remove me from ministry for this. Look, David stayed the king after what he did with Bathsheba, and that was murder. Even if we don't acknowledge that it was rape, we can at least acknowledge that there was murder. And you know what I've done, I don't think is as bad as murder. So since David was left in his position of authority, I can be left in my position of authority, right? And um, we see that ability to misuse and twist that scripture to justify abuse, to push inaction against abuse, to silence victims by saying, nothing's going to happen. Look, David was left in power. Nothing happened. All these other people were left in power. Nothing happened. This is how the church is going to deal with it. So you may as well keep your mouth shut because nothing's going to happen. The story of Mary and Joseph. I've heard a person on the radio proclaim Mary was probably 14 when she first had sex with Joseph. And that seemed to be okay. Mary was a teenager when the Holy Spirit came on her and that seemed yeah. to be okay. So why are you complaining about me touching you? You're 16. You're older than she was. Scriptures that talk about, well, if you don't cry out, then you were complicit, can be misused and weaponized. Scripture that addresses sex, sexuality, can be weaponized if your church believes that homosexuality is a sin. And we're talking same-sex abuse. Often, the victim will not have control over their bodily responses. The body does what it does. Just like if you clap your hands in front of somebody's face, they're going to blink whether they want to or not. The body responds whether it wants to or not. And that means sometimes a person will have a physical reaction to the abuse. And then the perpetrator can say, well, you had this physical reaction. Obviously, you enjoyed it. You had this physical reaction. Obviously, you are a participant. Do you really want to know the church? Want to let the church know that you had an affair with me? Do you really want to let the church know that you're gay? Because, you know, we're the same sex, same gender, and you had that physical response, so clearly you're gay. 
Do you really want them to know that? And when these are just twisted lies by the perpetrator and they're weaponizing scripture, passages that talk about public confession, when you combine that with not knowing the difference between that, that a power differential makes, you are then compelling a victim to confess their role in their own abuse, which is hideous. And the perpetrator can twist that scripture, can use it as a threat. You're going to have to confess in front of the entire congregation for what you did. So these are just a few examples of concepts that are in Scripture. There are too many individual verses to list. But concepts that are in Scripture that can be twisted and misused. And that, again, goes back to highlight why we have to preach about these things. Because if you preach about these things, it'll be harder to deceive the person. Yes, I feel like that's something that needs to be done in churches, but most churches refuse to talk on these topics, unfortunately. We're afraid to. Well, I mean, they're dark. Yeah. Um, let's get one more question in. Um, when we see recordings of abuse in the Bible, such as Lot and his daughters, which people... Uh, which most people in mental health would would see as the first record of a form of victim blaming, or even David and Bathsheba. I think we've talked about that a little bit. How how should we as Christians respond to these scriptures as Christians to the world? I think first we need to acknowledge that these are very difficult. <laughs> um, don't invent a pat answer that sounds good to try and avoid having to wrestle through the implications of the story. To try and to avoid having to wrestle through the implications of the passage. Uh, those are very difficult. Very difficult passages to wrestle through. And I'm going to admit that I haven't been able to wrestle through all of them, and, and, and I can't. If I were God, David would not still have been king. I don't know. I, I, I cannot understand why God let David still be king. I don't get that. We need to be able to acknowledge, I don't get that. To not try and come up with some super spiritual sounding explanation. To cover up the fact that that just might not make much sense to our minds. And that it's okay. When I look at scripture, I see people questioning God. And I often see God being okay with that. I trust that God, so this is for me, I'm not trying to force this on anyone. I, I personally trust that, that God knows what he's do, doing, that God knows what God has in mind. But I don't get it. Um, 
So don't just invent an answer to remove the need to wrestle through a very difficult passage. And let it be safe to question. Let it be safe to struggle. Let it be safe to not understand. Acknowledge the difficulty and preach about it. Like I was saying before, we have to preach about it. And going back even to the story of David and Bathsheba, I don't get why David stayed into power. But you know what I do get? I do get that when David was confronted by the prophet, the prophet did not come to David and say, David, you and Bathsheba sinned. The prophet came to David and said, David, you're the man. Bathsheba's never criticized for her role. It is 100% only David. So yes, I'm going to acknowledge there are some parts of this story that I don't get. I'm also going to say, to me, that is one of the clearest examples of don't you dare blame the victim. God doesn't blame the victim. Don't you dare blame the victim either. And so we have to wrestle through these. We can't come up with just some pad answer. But even in a passage that's difficult, there may be some important truth that we can pull out, that we can identify. Yeah, um, I think about Lot and his daughters as being a survivor of incest myself um, and how they they blame the... I feel like in a lot of ways they... they I mean, if you read the way that it's written from like a psychological or mental health uh, role, you'll see that it's written as if it was written by the abuser himself. Because yeah. they got him drunk. They were responsible. But if you really think about it, that's what an abuser would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's look at the broader context as well, right? This is Lot, who when a mob comes to his house, shoves his kids outside and says, here, do what you want with them. Exactly. So now we can see not just one incident, but we can see a pattern here. And nobody's saying that that was because he was drunk. No. And so maybe there's a little more to the story than just, yeah, they got him drunk. Yes. And, um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that's a hard passage. That is a passage that can be abused to seriously wound a survivor. 
can be weaponized. I don't believe that was the intent of the scripture. But it can easily... I don't think it was either. But it's one of the easiest passages to weaponize. And people have been seriously hurt by that twisting. I wish that I had a pat answer for these passages that I don't get. These passages that to me, I say, why is that in the Bible? In my view of God, God knows what's going to happen in the future. That's my view of God. So that means, and it's also my view, that God inspired scripture. So when God inspired that to be written, he knew it would be misused. I don't understand that. And I think it's okay to not understand. At least I hope it is. Because <laughs> there's a lot of things I don't understand. I think there's a lot of things that a lot of people don't understand, whether they acknowledge that or not. Personally, um, I think with that scripture, I've learned is that when we read the Bible as a whole, we have to remember who the author is. And the facts are there, but we have to analyze it from a different perspective and realize, you know, the people that write history in general are, you know, mm -hmm. people who think they conquer Yes, the author's personality and perspective comes through. And culture is, the culture of the day is reflected in the scripture. And we have to look at a passage with those things in mind. If we, and we have to look at what is, um, what literary form is it taking? You know, for for example, there's there's a proverb that says, eh, go ahead, beat your kid. It's not going to kill him if he bleeds. I don't think the vast majority of people would say, oh, therefore it is okay to beat your kid till they bleed. So we have to understand the culture in which a scripture was written. We have to also understand um, that uh, that particular passage often is is even viewed as sardonic humor of an, an extreme statement that's intentionally extreme. And we need to look at passages like the passage with Lot with awareness that it's a different culture and we need to understand that culture to try and tease out some of the truth and to try and understand part of that story. I would have to agree. 
Um, I think we have time for one short question. How do you feel the church could do better with helping sexual abuse victims? So my opinion on the number one most important thing that the church needs to do to be able to effectively help and support survivors, the number one most important thing is ask the survivors. Number one most important thing. Beyond that, some thoughts that may go into that. Once you have asked the survivors. Any plan for caring for survivors includes survivors. I've had cancer. Um, stage 4 cancer. With a bad prognosis. And I have no evidence of disease now, and that's great. And I thank God for that. But if you haven't had cancer, you don't know what it's like to have cancer and think you might die from it. You don't know what it's like to be afraid that you're not going to be there for your kids as they grow up, that you're not going to be there for your wife and you're going to leave her alone. You only know these things if you've experienced it. Once you've experienced it, I might listen to you more and I might allow you to talk to me about it more. For some odd reason, we don't get how that applies with other forms of trauma including abuse. Yes, we have a responsibility whether we have endured abuse or not. But don't overlook the fact that somebody who has not experienced abuse will never understand abuse to the degree that somebody who has experienced abuse understands it. So in figuring out how to help survivors and in helping survivors. The role of survivors is central. I think there also needs to be a recognition that this is the job of the church and not something that we are afraid of. When I got cancer, the leaders of the church all came over to my house and prayed over me. The pastor then said, will it be okay if in church on Sunday we take just 15 minutes at the start of the service to pray over you and your family? Small church of about 75 people at the time. And we said, yes, that'll be fine. So we get there, we take the first 15 minutes to pray over me, to pray over my family. And then the pastor says, you know what? We're just going to ditch the sermon today. And we're going to take the entire church service to pray over you and your family. And after the church service, one of our friends 
comes up to us and says, I know this is going to sound weird, but can I do your laundry? And for the next year, every Saturday, we put our dirty clothes out on the porch. And every Sunday, they were returned clean and folded. It was months before we had to buy a meal because of all the people bringing us meals and all the people giving us gift cards. Why do we as a church see that that's our role when somebody has cancer and we don't see that that's our role when somebody's experienced abuse? So change our perception to recognize that this is caring for somebody who is hurting just like we would care for a person who has cancer, just like we would care for a person going through another form of, of trauma, they don't get a lesser response just because it's abuse. They get that same care and love. Collaboration between mental health, health care, and spiritual care is absolutely essential. It's not just about spiritual care. Spiritual care is essential as it fits with where the person is at because abuse causes a deep spiritual wound. But abuse also causes a huge physical wound and abuse causes a huge emotional and psychological wound and we must allow the specialists in those areas to do their work. When I had cancer, I went to an oncologist. I didn't go to a foot doctor. So we collaborate with these other supports that are needed. I would encourage when the church has the capacity to make care of survivors a dedicated ministry. We've got a youth group. There are probably more survivors in your church than there are youth. We've got a ministry to shut-ins. There are probably more survivors in your church than there are shut-ins. A dedicated ministry to survivors, not just a survivor who's in an immediate crisis, absolutely a survivor who's in an immediate crisis, but to survivors, because at least a quarter of your church is survivors. Consult. Recognize that you don't have all the answers. No one church does, no one individual does, so consult. Look at what other groups have for tools, whether it's Grace, whether it's the Zero Abuse Project, whether it's Freedom for the Captives. Um, Sacred Spaces is an organization that focuses on the Jewish faith community and has unbelievable resources available. So see what organizations have resources available. Some of the resources that are there from groups such as Freedom for the Captives, they have devotionals that are specifically geared towards survivors. And we have to be careful because some devotionals that are out there that are for devotionals for survivors are devotionals to try and make you forgive the person. 
right away, whether you're ready to or not. Devotionals to try and force a redemptive narrative, whether um, that's there or not, or whether you're at the point of that. So we have to be careful. But a devotional that is able to walk through this this difficult time of questioning with a survivor. Good theology. Theology that does not blame a victim. Theology that recognizes the role of power. Theology that recognizes how our identity in Christ compels us to this work. That it is not an afterthought, but it is central to who we are in Christ and it is central to the heart of God. We have to tie it to our identity. We have to be willing to spend money on it. We have to hold leaders accountable, not just for whether or not they abused or covered up abuse, but also for whether or not they adequately care for survivors. We have to recognize that everyone in the church plays a role in supporting survivors. We have to preach about it. And we have to understand trauma-informed practice and the principles that, that this involves. Trauma-informed practice, we have to see how are we going to, in our church or our ministry, our faith community, how are we going to apply six key principles? Safety. How are we going to apply physical safety, psychological safety, spiritual safety? How are we going to apply trustworthiness and transparency? And we look at trustworthiness not as something we do to get people to trust us. But we look at trustworthiness as something that we do simply because we're called to be trustworthy. It's not a tool to get people to trust us. We're just called to be trustworthy. Worthy of trust. Nobody owes us trust. It's only about us being called to act in a way that is worthy of trust. And then we have transparency. Transparency that is determined by what information we share, how that information is shared, and when that information is shared. Peer support. That we recognize the central role that must be played by survivors in any strategy that we develop because nobody will know what is needed more than survivors. So stop and listen to what the survivors have to say. Collaboration and mutuality that we work together. We work together with survivors we work together on our team. It's not just one person making the decisions, but our team is working together and we collaborate outside of our group. The pastor collaborates with the therapist if everyone's open to that. We collaborate outside of our group. The fifth principle is empowerment, voice, and choice. We recognize that abuse strips power and silences voices and we are called to walk alongside people as they take 
back some of that power as they find their voice. And then humility in the face of the historical, cultural, and gender factors that cannot be separated from trauma. We have to take those principles into account when we are considering how to support survivors. Grace uh, actually has done a series of podcasts. Our, our final of the six-part series is next week, looking at how each of these six principles applies within the church. And it looks at the scripture that supports each of those principles, and it practically looks at how do we create safety? How can we be trustworthy? How can peers support? How do we collaborate? How do we help people find their voice and be empowered? And then next week is how do we have humility in the face of the cultural, historical, and gender factors? And you can find each of those programs or each an hour long on our YouTube page. Um, Pete will be back next week and tell us the rest of it. rest on Grace and his experience with spiritual abuse. Um, Pete, thanks for being here. Um. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's been an honor. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Pete's going to be back next week. Always follow us on your favorite platform for social media or on podcast. And if you have any questions or want to reach out or learn more about Rachel and Recovery, always go to rachelandrecovery.com. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week at 10 a.m. on Thursday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.